Hey, Urban Farm Podcast listeners. If you're as passionate about preserving the bounty of each season as we are, hey, I canned my first peaches at the age of 18, and that was a long time ago, then you're going to love what our friends over at Denali Canning have in store for you. They're on a mission to spread the love and knowledge of food preservation, and they're inviting you to join the journey for free. Right now, Denali Canning is offering free canning lids to anyone who wants to dive deeper into the world of food preservation. Yes, you heard that right, absolutely free. It's the perfect opportunity for both seasoned canners and those curious about starting. Denali is about quality, reliability, and supporting the canning community, ensuring that you get the best results every time you preserve. So why not give it a try? Visit DenaliCanning.com forward slash free to claim your free lids and start your preserving adventures today. That's DenaliCanning.com forward slash free. Greetings, urban farmers, gardeners, and healthy food visionaries. Farmer Greg here, and welcome to the 660th episode of the Urban Farm Podcast, where every day we work together to educate and inspire you to become part of your food revolution. Welcome, welcome, everybody. Greg Peterson coming to you from the Urban Farm in the heart of Phoenix, Arizona. I am here tonight with Bill McDormand, and we are going to be chatting about harvesting the future from your garden. Your tastiest vegetables can be grown again and again from your own garden. Future harvests are just a few steps away from what you are growing now. And Bill McDormand can help you see the path to the future you want. <laughs> and uh, we actually have something going on here at the Urban Farm called an old growth food forest, which we're going to speak about tonight as well. Well, that would so, be the ultimate. Right? Yeah, exactly. So Bill got his start in the bioregional seed movement when he was in college in 79, when he started Garden City Seeds. And in 84, Bill started Seeds Trust High Altitude Gardens, a mail-order seed company he ran successfully until he sold it to a mutual friend of ours in 2013. He authored the book Basic Seed Saving in 94. In 2010, he and his wife, Bill Starr, created Seed School, a nationally recognized week-long training. Uh, since then, in fact, I was that was in 2010. In 2011, I was in seed school in Tucson, and I said, "Hey, Bill, how about if we put these online?" Yeah, good idea. So, yeah, so Bill is a passionate and knowledgeable presenter who inspires his audience to learn to save their own seeds and so much more. And um, if you are an, all a listener of the podcast, you've heard him before, and we are just going to jump in here. Welcome, Bill. Well, thank you, Greg. This is, it's as always, it's an honor to be here. Always great fun. When you talk about the future that you can get out of your garden, it's for me, you know, after you do it for a while, there's no other way. Right. I, I, you know, we're, we're learning now and uh, it was intuitive at first, but I've started paying attention. You, mm. can, you can have tremendous success if you save your own seeds and plant them again in your own garden yeah. or watch for volunteers. Mm -hmm. And that can happen a lot, even maybe plant yeah. or shake your lettuce a little at the end of the year. So, it, you know, all the seeds fall and then they volunteer themselves, that sort of thing. Yeah. But the plants just seem to do better. Yeah. And that makes sense. That's how we got most of the food crops we have, is that somebody's been doing that for 10,000 years somewhere. 
-hmm. And those crops learn to adapt and change to that place. And so, you know, it just makes so much sense. So the, for me, the question is why don't American gardeners think like this more? I mean, the big, you know, the national sport for gardeners and gardeners are the largest outdoor hobby in America besides bird watching. Really? Yeah. There's like, you know, 150 million people partake in some kind of outdoor garden activity every year. In the U.S.? In the U.S., something. And I haven't looked at the latest statistics, but I used to read the National Garden Survey, if you're interested, done by the National Gardening Association every year. And they just give you all the demographics and the numbers. And so, you know, the national sport this time of year for almost all of those gardeners is uh, no seed catalogs, right? Oh, I'm going to sit in front of my seed catalogs in bed or wherever this dark winter and salivate over, you know, what I can grow next year. It's dream time. Yep. And there's nothing wrong with that. It is very exciting to think about it. But it's... I think it's been planned that way, actually, the older I get uh, by industry, especially, who sort of um, moved us into this channel where we think that we have to buy our seats every year. The hybridization of seeds, we've talked about some of those things on the shows. And so it's perfectly natural now for most gardeners to actually, their first impulse is that I can't save any of my seeds. Or right. if things come up my garden, you know, they're not going to be as good as what I find in the catalog and buy every year. And so I guess, the, you know, the theme for me tonight in this uh, show is to hopefully open up a little window into the fact that it's not only natural it, uh, and it saves you money, mm-hmm. you can actually do better. <laughs> right. And that's where then, so if you want to salivate, if you want to get all excited in the winter, if you want to, you know, dream about what can be, then have a seed exchange with all your neighbors and all the people that garden around you. You know, and get together with them, have a potluck dinner and trade stories and trade those seeds that are actually adapted to gardens really close to yours. And then you're getting that kick, you know, mm-hmm. the, that adaptation kick that you can't get when you buy seeds in a catalog. You know, fr- frankly, there's very few catalogs that will tell you where the seeds in their catalogs are actually grown. Oh, right. And I can tell you from owning a seed company for 28 years, all, there's almost no company that grows all its own seeds. And the only one that has little codes and tells you where they're all grown is uh, Siskiyou Seeds in uh, Williams, Oregon, Don Tipping's catalog. You know, and I think the Snake River Seed Co-op does that in Boise, Idaho now. They've got 40 growers and they'll tell you where the seeds are grown exactly in the microclimates in central Idaho. And so if you have that, then that's a different story. You're supporting your own local economy. You know where they're growing. But all the rest of us, you know, if you if you order seeds from a West Coast seed company or an East Coast seed company, chances are now, if even if they're certified organic, that they're being contract grown as far away as China. Yeah. And so... How's that going to do <laughs> in your garden in Phoenix or wherever you are? So that's really what the show's about. So we can get into all sorts of little tricks and tips and, and well, stuff. Let's, let's start here. All There's right. a particular kind of seed. In order to do what I've done here at the Urban Farm for 32 years, which is what we now call, uh, and I just learned this last summer, an old growth food forest, where I just let things grow go to seed and seed themselves so that there's always food to eat in the yard. Right. There's a particular kind of seed that we need to get okay. called an open pollinated or an heirloom seed. Can you tell us what that is? Well, you know, it, we shouldn't have to tell people because that's the way seeds have always been. It's only in the modern era right. where we've, we've developed what we call F1 hybrid seed to sell to gardeners. 
And there's a lot of talk, you know, Jack Kloppenberg, who is at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, wrote mm -hmm. a book called First the Seed. If anybody out there listening wants to, and we can type it in the chat, I will. Oh, Let's learn sort of the history of how this all came about. He talks mm -hmm. about it very authoritatively with a lot of data. But most of the garden seed in America, and then it got pushed around the world, has been hybridized. And hybridization can bring advantages to a crop, mm -hmm. especially uh, corn and out, what we call outcrossing crops. And we're not going to get into all of that tonight. But it's questionable, and there are some very good plant breeders and plant geneticists that argue this all the time now, is that if you put the same time, money, and energy into open-pollinated or uncontrolled pollinating plants, mm -hmm. in selecting them and adapting them to local places, we'd actually have better varieties than this hybridization, right. which is supposed to give it vigor, right? Or convey a single gene trait for a disease resistance or something. And so, yeah, generally, if you're going to do this, um, start with open pollinated seeds. You'll get more of them to come back and work and start to adapt in your yard. But you can throw in some hybrids, too. I mean, it all works on some level. But mm -hmm. then you just have to be there to select out and save only the seeds from those things that you think are doing the best for you. So what does open pollinated mean as, well, opposed, uh, to, uh, as opposed to... F1 hybrid or? Well, so the, the F1 hybrids are created by controlling the pollination. Mm -hmm. In other words, they take plants that have specific traits that they want, and they only cross those with plants that have other traits that they want so that they can predict what the outcomes are going to be like. So there's a lot of control going on in that grandparent Thing. So what happens is they'll do all this controlling, create these hybrids, cross those, and then you buy that seed. So they've got, they get control and they can predict pretty much a lot of the traits, the ones they want to, in the offspring that they're selling you. So when you grow something, they're pretty sure you're going to get what you buy. Mm -hmm. And we like control, right? As gar we, everybody wants it to look good and right. to be consistent. And that's absolutely necessary if you're a market gardener, right? You got to, if you bought a certain kind of beet, you want them all that way. You don't want variation in it. Whereas open pollinated, it's the opposite. No control. Mm -hmm. It crosses with whatever it wants. And if you're only growing your variety around, it'll cross with all the other, say, beets or whatever you're growing mm -hmm. in your yard. If you have neighbors, maybe some of the pollen could come over the fence. You know, but it's open and uncontrolled. That's basically what open pollinated means. Well, and aren't open pollinated seeds a little bit more stable as well? Well, the populations are more stable. Ah, so there's, okay. a, you know, it. I mean, never say never about anything. You don't know what's going to happen in each individual instance of a plant growing and it could have gotten pollen from somewhere else there's deleterious um, recessives that could express there are also mutations we you know but generally the whole population will look like the population that it came right. from and that's what gives open pollinated crops their strength Right. So you so if you've got an open pollinated bee, I was using that like uh, early winter tall top uh -huh. and you and you plant them all out, say a big field full of them. There is some variation in them there. You know, it's a big population and it's not perfectly uniform. Mm -hmm. Nobody has inbred parents somewhere and controlled the cross. 
you know, to create a hybrid. But there's all sorts of open pollination things going on in this population. And so that's good because it gives you some variability. If it gets really hot, maybe some of them don't do as well. If there's a flood, maybe others don't do as well. But generally, your population will act and behave like early winter tall top. And year after year, they'll start to adapt where you are, and mm -hmm. you'll be okay. And those adaptations, are they're small adaptations for our space, right? Well, you know, and there could be billions. We don't know. We can't, there's no way to measure all the adaptations that take mm -hmm. place. And uh, mm -hmm. I mean, you, you know, we teach this in permaculture. How many different kinds of microorganisms are there now that we know that oh are in gosh. the soil? Right. So how are those how are those reacting? And how's your plant reacting to that soil? And now we're getting weird weather patterns and things like that. I mean, we know through epigenetics that if there's a huge stress, say a heat stress on a plant, it can actually react to that by changing, rolling up or mm. rolling out its own DNA in real time and expressing the different proteins or not. And so it can survive that heat. It actually changes to survive that heat. And we know that it can pass that on to its immediate offspring. So those what? kinds of adaptations could be really valuable as we look at climate change. Right. And what is that called? Well, epigenetics uh, is yeah. the is the system wh whereby that happens. Epi means beyond mm -hmm. genetics, and so you know Barbara McClintock helped discover this and won a Nobel Prize for her work in transposons. You know this world that we think are these fixtures, like little switches on and off, like genes that are arranged into chromosomes, and all that is kind of a general language observing mm -hmm. patterns of how things work but it's way more complicated than that. And now we're starting to learn, especially in study in the last 20 years, how plants, even in one year, start to pass on their adaptations. And that's what we're talking about, taking your garden into the future. Who wants to start over year after year after year with adaptations if you live in what I call a fringe climate, especially if you live in Phoenix. Phoenix. Or you live <laughs> we in said eight, that at the same time. Right. 8,000 feet in Colorado where, where you know the large batches of seeds that are coming out of the most popular seed houses are never grown there. Yeah. They're grown in as you know, easy a place as possible to produce seeds. And unless you live right across the field, those things aren't adapted for you. And so what do we do? Oh, we've learned how to use chemicals and fertilizers and irrigation to help change everything so our mm -hmm. plants will work like the way they did where they were grown. What I'm trying to do and what you can do for your own future is roll with the punches, let the weather change. If you don't have a lot of fertility in your soil, you don't have a lot. Save seeds from the plants that do best where you are with the conditions you have. In a sense, you're teaching them to behave and grow up and be your friends that way. It's really an exciting sort of change in the way we think about gardening. Right. I love this. Wendy says, uh, Wendy in Phoenix, for the second year, I can see the red leaf lettuce starting to come up in my backyard right near her Lear garden. Prickly lettuce right. is also coming up. I have loads of mallow. They're all volunteers. Wendy and everybody. Exactly. That is exactly what we're talking about. This is how you get old growth going on. I have this interesting series of events that happens here in the front yard at the urban farm every year for at least 15 years. And the nasturtiums, I think, have been around for 20 or 25 years. Every year, 
about now in January, the nasturtiums start coming up. No, wow. that's not that's not correct. Let me let me step back here. It, usually about November, December, the nasturtiums start coming up. Right. Right. And uh, they grow all the way until it gets so hot that they burn out. Now, nasturtiums are an edible flower and they're a great ground cover. And then right about the time the nasturtiums start burning off in June, the cowpeas come up and the cowpeas grow up. Cowpeas are nitrogen fixtures. They come up. I harvest them like mad and hand them out in our fruit tree program. And they grow through the summer, shading the ground throughout the summer. And then when it gets cold in November here, they freeze yeah. back, right? And, and here come, here and come here the nasturtiums. Exactly. And it just year over year over, I don't even have to do anything. See, and the nasturtium leftover plants, when they die back, become mulch for next year. And the cowpeas die back and they become a nitrogen-rich mulch for the next year. So it's, it's just this self-serving thing. Um, In fact, yeah, recently I was, uh, this was really cool. I was walking the dog and across the street from me, I walked in their yard, um, just, or walked near their yard as I was walking by, I saw a lettuce plant coming up in their front yard. Wow. Right. Are you going to get sued? (laughs) I don't know. Your genetic material is invading their yard. There you go. I thought it was a cool thing. So that's how it happens. Say more about that, would you? Bill, this just this whole process of just automation. It just automatically happens. Well, you, you know, permaculture, you would call that a guild, right? So, And there's intelligence. And so instead of us thinking it's top-down, we're the moderators, we're doing all these things to soil. We're bringing in water. We're changing conditions. I've got to bring in a truck of soil, right? I've always heard gardeners say that. Yeah. And I've never seen a truck of soil that didn't bring problems with it. Mm. You know, I, for some, you know, it just seems like they bring in weeds in most cases. You don't have to change anything. Just start finding what you found by growing as many different things as you can and many Mm -hmm. different varieties, letting them cross if they're going to cross. Open pollinated is our friend. You're rolling more dice. You're causing more kinds of adaptations to be available in the plant life on your yard. And then learn a keen eye to picking out and saving and making sure it works, the things that you really like, mm-hmm. create those conditions. And that's really the secret here. So, you know, the lettuce, of course, it, you know, if you've seen your lettuce bolt and go to seed, they're little parachutes. They look yes. like dand- dandelions. And that's how it ended up over in your neighbor's exactly. yard, right? No doubt. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. All right. So before we before we got on, we talked about uh, a couple of ways to, to manifest this in your yard. And one of them is to plant open pollinated seeds right. and then just let them go to seed. Often I will be in the front yard and I jokingly say to people, I just grab the dried seed head and I spread it. I don't even bother saving the seeds. Right. I just spread them throughout the landscape. Right. Yeah. And that works in so many places. It's working in more and more. If you live in an area where it gets really cold in the winter, mm-hmm. And I noticed this when I lived in snow country is that I was fine if it snowed. In other words, my seeds would be okay under a relatively warm blanket of snow. Mm -hmm. So I'd grab them, I'd sprinkle them on the ground, everything's okay, and they would come up. But if we had one of those winters, and we're having those occasionally, we were before I left Idaho, where it would get really, really cold. I'm talking 20 below before there was snow. 
yeah, an Arctic cold thing, snap or something would come down. And so that would kill those seeds. I just know mm. maybe it freeze dries, dries them. Maybe somebody out there knows exactly what goes on. But it seems like there were years where that didn't happen. So in snow country or if you're in the fringe climate in the mountains and you want to guarantee that this works, and then mulch things. Use your All own right. mulch. Don't wait for the warm blanket of snow and you'll just increase your chances. That's one of the little things mountain gardeners can do to really help with this. You know, I was going to tell a story. I love your story about your cowpeas. I'm growing and saving the seeds every year for a tomato. Actually, it comes back now um, called Punta Banda. Oh, yes. That comes from the Punta Banda Peninsula, south of Ensenada in, on the Baja. Uh -huh. And somebody found seed, found this plant growing like your cowpeas, 20 years, just growing Tomatoes falling on the ground, self-seeding, coming back. It just learned to adapt. But what was different about it there is that it was hot, 100 degree oh, yes. summers. And this tomato still sets fruit at 100 degrees. So wow. in, the, in the hottest parts of the summer here in Arizona, where all my other tomatoes just kind of go dormant. They're mm -hmm. there. The plants are there, but I get no tomatoes. These guys are just pumping them out. Wow. You know, so that's, you know, what we're looking for, adaptations. And this was caused by it getting out of control somewhere and finding its niche and just growing itself every year. And wow, way more fun. Right. Carrie says maybe it's mimicking the industrial type of to buy seeds every year. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, the agricultural and horticultural industries figured out as they started to grow. And they were um, starting to make money. They could get you to have to buy everything every year. All of it. I'm not talking tractors, but I'm talking about the fertilizers yeah. and the herbicides and the pesticides and all the things you need. But they couldn't do that in the beginning to seeds. They would sell you your seeds and then you could just keep saving your own and never have to come back. So what kind of an industry is that? Yeah. And it seems like, and you'll read this in Jack's book, from the very beginning, they were laser focused on trying to find a way to make that product like all the other products that you would have to go and buy it every year. And that just mm -hmm. made sense from their perspective economically. Right. The, the problem is it's just not very good for us. As good. Right. Paula said, here's some interesting questions from Paula. <laughs> if you let your plants drop seed to grow the next year, what about crop rotation and how do you avoid promoting disease and or bugs? I have an answer for that, but what's yours? Well, you don't necessarily have to grow it in that place. When, when they're little teeny and you see them come up, uh -huh. if you want to move them, you can move them then. Mm -hmm. You know, you can take a whole shovel full of lettuce, seedlings or whatever around. They seem to be pretty good then. Yeah. And the crops that you would be most careful of for crop rotation, mm -hmm. things like melons, especially, you know, you're right. And, but I don't remember ever leaving melons out to receive themselves, you mm. know, so that, so we're talking generally here. So what you would do is harvest your melons and out of the very best one, eat it and then get all your friends that are eating it with them to spit all the seeds in a cup. Mm -hmm. Then you can plant them wherever you want. But yeah, crop rotations are, are interesting. I mean, the other philosophy as far as that's concerned was like Fukuoka, right? The one straw revolution mm -hmm. where if the disease comes up in one place and starts getting a crop, they'll migrate. In other words, crops have this intelligence to walk around and move around sometimes anyway and find their own places. 
So again, we're intervening. We think we're being scientific about this, but maybe just watching more. There you go. Let nature be. Yeah. Let nature be. So Paula, my answer to that is that I've been growing things here at the urban farm for 32 years and I have bugs and there's a little bit of disease that hangs out here, but I have such a balanced after 32 years, I have such a balanced system here. And when you're in balance, bugs and diseases aren't really that big of a problem. You know, it's just part of the process. And yeah, the more I've done it here, the more I see it's just, you know, things just work. And if they don't work in a particular place, they, you know, from a natural perspective, it won't happen. Well, so so let's put a little context around that though. What's your, what's your average rainfall? Seven inches. Okay. Well, 99 point, I'm, making this up 99% of all the plant diseases that that would get your garden vegetables Mm -hmm. happen as a result of moisture Uh, either at the wrong time or too much or whatever so you're like I was in Idaho we got less than 10 inches of rain and people would call up my little seed company from all over the world and go tell me about this disease do you know about this I'm supposed to be the expert about everything and I go I finally realized that the honest answer is I live in I a place know. that never has them. I've never had them. They, yeah. you know, it's just not possible. Yeah. Well, there you go. Cool. Carrie wants to know the nasturtium and cowpeas areas irrigated. We actually have something here in Phoenix called flood irrigation. And I get six inches of water 22 times a year on my property. It's a water right that comes with about 33,000 acres here in the Phoenix area. And these the that 33,000 acres is old citrus orchard. So that's how they get watered. I do know that the nasturtiums and the cowpea system works on non-irrigated properties, non-flood irrigated properties. You just have to water them. You know, use your use your drip tape. I know Carrie, you ordered some drip tape from us. Use your drip tape and plant near them and, you know, and then get that on a, you know, on an every two or three day schedule and they'll do great. So Carrie also wants to know what would the steps to create an old growth food forest be? So for me, learn permaculture. Yeah. Carrie, do a permaculture design course. We do one here in Phoenix. I'm sure if you type in San Diego permaculture design course, you're going to come up with one. It's 72 hours. It's a deep dive into an introduction of permaculture. And that's going to teach you a lot because basically what I do here at the Urban Farm is I watch nature. How does nature work? What is, how does nature do things in my yard? And uh, how can I mimic that? Well, we had, a, I'm trying to think of the permaculture young man that was in Flagstaff, Josh Robinson. Uh-huh. Josh Robinson teaches permaculture. Yeah, t- uh, moved to San Diego to teach and was teaching permaculture. So that oh, might be. Oh, very good. And was working on like a 10 acre uh, food forest there. The easiest thing is to walk into one that's already going and see what they did. You know, exactly. if you can find it there. And I think they are there. In oh, yeah. San Diego. And if not, go up to L.A. and, and find Larry Santoyo. Oh, yeah. Oh, right. El- and yeah, he is an amazing teacher to learn from. He teaches out of L.A. So and that's not too far from San Diego. It might be, you know, something to do to go take a, P- a PDC. They call it a PDC, permaculture design course. And the course is uh, the 72 hours mimics what you would get in a three credit semester course. Oh, that's, how it was, that's how it was designed by Mel- Bill Mollison originally. Ah, I didn't so know that. that. It, 
it was it would be an equivalent so that they could give credit to people that were outside their Tasmanian university. Yeah, perfect. So let's shift a little bit here, Bill. We put together late last year a new series of classes. It's three classes. It's Seed Saving 101. And tell everybody a little bit about that. Well, you know, this is the, the continual challenge now, isn't it? Yeah. You know, I, I remember what uh, Samuel Clements, Mark Twain said once. He said, I'm sorry I wrote you such a long letter. I didn't have time to write you a short one. <laughs> so, so this is another version of our, our way to get as many people as possible up and running around the basic principles of seed saving yep. and to be great seed citizens world-class. That's the goal. And so, you know, we started, we mimicked a PDC course, only we only did 10 days the first time we started teaching right. seed schools or nine days. Eight. Eight. <laughs> I think we what we had originally thought about doing 10. 10 you know, we'd yeah. be two weekends and whatever. But then we got down to five, five and a half day courses. Mm -hmm. And then we got it down to a full day. And then we started doing it online. And, you know, for years, we've been doing it in six, seven or eight hour-long yeah. sections. And so now this is the latest incursion into that, is to try to take what we've learned doing that with all the feedback over all those iterations, and I'm talking hundreds of them now, to get it so that, you know, it's, I wrote you a short letter. I took the time <laughs> to write you a short letter, and yeah. that's what that would be. Yeah, and it's an amazing, it's uh, three 20-minute classes, you can find it at learn.urbanfarm.org and it's, you can sign up for free uh, and you can hear Bill talk for three 20-minute classes on how to save seeds. Why should somebody be concerned, interested about saving seeds, Bill? Well, I, you know, there are lots of reasons to be concerned and I could doom and gloom us for an hour <laughs> right. over what I really think is going on in the world, but that's not the reason to get into seed saving. Seed saving is the most productive and exponen exponentially potential that you'll ever touch your hands or wrap, try to wrap your mind around in your life. And that that's just exciting every yeah. time it happens to me. Yeah. So I, I had something happen a couple of years ago. I had four ounces of carrot seeds, just a little, you know, maybe a, a cup and a half of carrot seeds. And carrot seeds are small. How many carrot seeds would you think was in a cup and a half of carrots? You know, I yeah, there. I think there's like 160,000 seeds in an ounce or something. I mean, it's oh just a, an astounding. Right there, there are six. Well, I we can figure it out. There are 600 seeds in a gram. Oh my god! So I I had this guy come by the house and he was helping me in the yard and he said, "Yeah, I know how to plant seeds. No problem. You just you just go inside." And so I walked away and I came back. And when I came back, he had planted the entire four ounces of seeds in my yard. In an acre? <laughs> no, 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 no. No, in a thousand square feet in my front yard. Oh, my God. And what came of that was two five-gallon buckets of carrot seeds. Wow. You wow. know, they were, all, they were all jammed close together, so they, they didn't make good-sized carrots. But they but all they, went to seed. But they all went to seed. And I'm still processing carrot seeds at this point. It's just amazing. And that's where the abundance piece comes in. Yeah. Um, and I've said, I've been saying this for years. The only place, the only place the lack lives is between our ears. Because yeah. when I look at the sheer abundance in the world of yeah. growing in my garden, 
the amount of apples that show up on my trees, the amount of oranges and peaches and the amount of, you know, carrot seeds and nasturtiums and cow peas. It's just amazing. It's just yeah. absolutely amazing. Yeah. So. Yeah, abundance, it teaches us, it reminds us, at least for me, abundance. You know, I'm growing ancient and heritage grains. Oh, yes. And I just planted uh, 27 different grains. Varieties? And I, varieties. And I did 50, wow. seed, 50 seeds each. And out of 50 grain seeds, I can get a pound. And if I had room to plant a pound, I could get 100 pounds. And so that's what farmers wow. want. In two years, we could scale up a little packet of seeds into something for a farmer. I mean, that's just unbelievable, you yeah. know? And so we're, as we're sifting through, we're going to sift through hundreds of different varieties of ancient and heritage grains to find out which ones grow best. There's right here. <laughs> nice. And then once, and nice. people look at it and go, oh, Bill, that's kind of cute. You're playing around on such a small, that's not really grain growing, but, but it is. It, it, yes, it is. And I love the story. Some of you on this call have heard this story before, but you need to tell the story of Sonoran white wheat and what happened with that, because it started out just exactly like this, what you yeah. just said and turned yeah. into. Well, it was, uh, you know, 1100 acres that I heard about that I don't know how many acres are being grown now, but it's become uh, uh, an industry for two farms and at least one mill and several bakeries in Southern Arizona. That was a little different because, different because we knew the variety was adapted to Southern Arizona. It's been there mm -hmm. for 400 years. Yeah. You know, the story is that Father Kino or one of the first missionaries brought it into Arizona when they first came. And so, and they traded that for corn, you know, and that's where flour uh, tortillas came from, mm -hmm. right? That all happened a long time ago. And so, you know, as we're, trying to dig out from underneath this industrial storm and find things that work without all the industrial inputs. It's just natural to go back to older varieties that we know worked at one time. And so that's where the yeah. white Sonoran story came from. And again, you can scale up quickly. That's what, again, that's the, the key to that. I want you to tell the scale, give me 30 seconds or a minute on how that scale up happened for Sonoran white wheat. Well, we, a couple of handfuls, turned into a grow out at Native Seed Search that turned into uh, several hundred pounds that actually I was asked when I was there if we would sell to Avalon Gardens, mm -hmm. which is a community in Southern Arizona. They wanted to buy 400 pounds. They were ready to um, try to be self-reliant in their own community and with their own grains. They were buying little grain silos and elevated, you know, they had all the equipment. And I was thinking about it and I go, no, you can't buy it. And they look so, oh my God, because this was the key to their whole, you know, yeah. their whole program that year. And I said, no, I'm going to give it to you. I'm going to give you the 400 pounds. And they looked at me and I said, and if, and when you can, you'll return twice as much, 800 pounds. That's what I need. Yeah. And, and one of them got a calculator out and maybe it was Mossetine, they ran some numbers with what they thought they were going to be able to grow from 400 pounds or whatever. And he goes, oh, it's 140th of the crop is what they're going to want back. And they oh, go, wow. <laughs> we can do that. We can do that. And so I, we did that. And I realized in that, in that moment that if I just sold it to them, transactions over. Yeah. Right. I get the money, they get the seeds. It was for native seed search. But what happened was that I followed those guys 
what are you doing? Did you plant? How did it work? Or whatever, because I, I want my 800 pounds back. And they feel this sense of responsibility, like we, mm -hmm. we can't screw this up because yeah. we have to pay them back. And so I've built this, there's a built-in community builder in there. So anyway, I forgot all about it. And uh, was a couple of years later, I get a call from Jeff Zimmerman, Hayden Mills. He said, Bill, we got a truck here, 5,000 pounds of Sonoran white wheat. Where do you want it? And I go, where did it come from? And I'd forgotten all about it. And he said, well, you remember that 400 pounds? Yeah, well, that became 800 pounds. And so instead of giving it back to you, we gave it to another farmer that grew it out and so on and so forth. And now we have 5,000 pounds and we just don't know where to take it. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I'm talking about. That's abundance. And that we can yeah. do that for everything. I think so much of our modern economics derives from scarcity. Yeah. And zero sum game. If I have it, I'm better than you. Or if yeah. I have it, or if you have it, I can't have it. And all these kinds of thinking. And you drop your own seed saving into the middle of that. And pretty soon you start going, well, I could just grow that out again. Right. Or I'm going to have more than you anyway. Why don't we share more? Yeah. And you come up with these, these schemes like uh, the one that's, I learned this from Vandana Shiva. And that, that she said that goes back a thousand years. Every farmer and gardener should always have the seeds they need from the people around them. And if and when they can, they will pay them back with twice as much. Yeah. And I like that. I'm, I still want to operate on that level for sure. Amen. Amen. Well, cool. Thank you so much for joining me tonight, Bill. Yeah, thank you. Always, this is great. Always great fun. Uh, yeah. So if you're interested, and please, actually, here's my request. For everybody on the call tonight, please go to learn.urbanfarm.org. The link is in the chat box and sign up for the free class. Now, it does lead to our, our Seed School Online, just so you know. This is the first step. You don't have to sign up. If you want to dig in deeper to saving seeds, then our Seed School Online is, is the best one in the world. And that, that goes to support the work that we do here. The other thing that I would request, if you don't end up buying our Seed School Online, go to urbanfarm.org forward slash support us. I think that's it. Yep. Support us. There we go. I'm putting this in the chat box as well. And, you know, make a donation. You know, we did, we did this out of the kindness of our hearts and to get people motivated tonight. You know, if there was some value there for you, make us a donation. It helps move what we do forward. And it's both Bill and I and our entire team on both sides are passionate about doing that. So for sure, please visit learn.urbanfarm.org. And here's my request for you. Take the three mini classes. They're 20 minutes each and make comments at the bottom. There's a Facebook feed down at the bottom. Just tell, give us feedback on it. There we go. That's how we learn, right? That's, that's how we learn. Thank you very much, Bill. All right. Um, thank you. Thank you, everybody, for coming. Yep. I was going to check the Q&A, but we're done with Q&A. And we will do, we'll have you back next month for the uh, Seed Chat. Great. Can't Thanks, wait. Bill. Thank Bye. you, everybody. Have a great evening. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast. Remember to listen for tips, advice, and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming. You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org. In the words of Vincent Van Gogh, great things are done by a series of small things brought together. Be encouraged that with each lesson learned and skill developed, you are one step closer in the direction of your dreams.
Hey, Urban Farm Podcast listeners. If you're as passionate about preserving the bounty of each season as we are, hey, I canned my first peaches at the age of 18, and that was a long time ago, then you're going to love what our friends over at Denali Canning have in store for you. They're on a mission to spread the love and knowledge of food preservation, and they're inviting you to join the journey for free. Right now, Denali Canning is offering free canning lids to anyone who wants to dive deeper into the world of food preservation. Yes, you heard that right, absolutely free. It's the perfect opportunity for both seasoned canners and those curious about starting. Denali is about quality, reliability, and supporting the canning community, ensuring that you get the best results every time you preserve. So why not give it a try? Visit DenaliCanning.com forward slash free to claim your free lids and start your preserving adventures today. That's DenaliCanning.com forward slash free.